Hello, everyone. Today is Thursday, September 21st. This is Rafael Garcia and Swan Hemes back for episode 58 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. First and foremost, I want to thank you for taking your time to listen to us tonight. And I want to thank my uh, co-host here, Swan. How are you doing tonight, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, just busy as always. I, they got they talked me into uh, coaching for my for the high school girls freshman and JV fall league. So I've been doing that and writing, and then getting ready for the show. And then I got a tournament this week, so I'm I'm just all over the place. Listen, all I want to know. I am undefeated. I am undefeated though. Rank, we're representing for MMA ratings. We are undefeated though. All I want to know is, are you out there acting like LeVar Ball? That's it. That's all I want to know. No, I'm not that guy. Because if you are, I need for someone to get it on film so we can paste it everywhere and laugh ourselves to sleep at at this. I'm a little bit more. I'm a little bit more reasonable. I probably yell at my kids like he does, but I don't be yelling at other people and making. I didn't say that I could beat Steph Curry one on one. So that that's where that's at right now. Hey man, you never know. Yeah, but I, I could probably beat him in a grappling match or maybe kickboxing, but not in basketball. So let's sit here and let's talk about some mixed martial arts, man. We got and boxing actually, because we got quite a bit to cover from last week. Where man, I don't even remember the UFC fight from last week. Who fought last week? Uh, Uh, Luke Rocco. Luke Rocco. That's correct. We're gonna talk. We're only. I don't really want to touch on the Luke Rocco fight. There were some other. Hello? Uh, I'm not sure if Raphael is still on right now. It may just be me. Let me see real quick. I don't know if I'm recording or not. Okay, well, uh, Raphael is just taking a uh, brief break to reset some equipment. But uh, as usual, we will be getting into talking MMA and boxing. Oh, back already. (laughs) That's why he is one of the best in the business. Getting things back in order ASAP. But um, as I was saying, we will be talking some MMA. And we'll be talking some boxing, of course, because the uh, big Triple G versus Canelo fight was last week. Uh, we don't just talk MMA on this on this podcast. We do everything from competitive grappling to mixed martial arts, sometimes kickboxing. And me and Rafael are both boxing fans, so you know we're going to touch on the Canelo and Triple G fight from last Saturday. We'll also uh, look at the uh, UFC event they also had with uh, Luke Rockhold versus David Branch. There were a couple of interesting fights on that card. That we're going to go over and then finally we'll be getting we'll break down the bellator card on friday and we will also be discussing a bit of the ufc saitama card even though uh the main event has been less than uh overwhelming as a whole we'll talk about the uh, matchups the fans will care about so to get us started 
Let's see, what are we going to talk about first? We're going to, let's see, the first thing we'll talk about, we'll talk about the elephant in the room, the biggest fight of the weekend, mixed martial arts or boxing, one of the biggest fights of the year, probably the second biggest fight, boxing match of the year in Triple G, Gennady Golovkin facing Saul Canelo Alvarez. And um, they basically were fighting to be who was going to be number one middleweight, super middleweight, in, excuse me, middleweight in the world and for a spot in the top end of the pound for pound top 10. The fight went pretty much how I thought it was going to go because we had Triple G, who was the invincible, unhurtable, strong, powerful, deliberate, but skilled forward pressuring fighter against Canelo who, even though he was a, who is of Mexican descent, has actually gotten a reputation as a defensive, defensively slick and offensively creative fighter. So culturally, he kind of he's kind of gone against the idea of the Mexican fighter because everybody thinks of the Mexican fighter as a guy who plants his feet and gets in exchanges, throws heavy body shots, uh, pressures you, walks you down, and overwhelms you with a combination of cardio, toughness, and physicality. Canelo is actually more of a technician. He's known for his excellent footwork, his distance control, his uh, creative punching combinations, and his surprisingly forceful and slick counterpunching. And the funny thing is, Golovkin, even though he's, he's not even from the country, is actually embraced by the Mexican fans and has started a style or changed his original style into the Mexican style, which has become all the rage for, and helped him and go on what was recently a 23-fight knockout streak, only ending in his last fight versus Danny Jacobs um, for um, all the title belts, which was about uh, three months ago, three, four months ago. Um, on to the fight. The fight ended with a lot of controversy. We had two scores that were reasonable, and then we had the score by Adelaide Bird essentially neutralizing any work that Golovkin did and putting the fight obsessed unevenly in favor of Saul Canelo. Um, the biggest thing I would like to take from the fight is that we actually got to see two guys, and though, they, though Golovkin's not in his prime, he's still at the top, he's still considered elite for his division, and Canelo, a guy who's in the middle of his prime, actually fight, and a meaningful fight for meaningful money, and that's not something we get nowadays. Nowadays we've gotten used to guys fighting fighting cans, fighting guys who really aren't in their level, or fighting someone else who's been moved into a position as a result of their promotional connections. This is none of that. These are two separate promoters. These are two fighters who are pretty much at the opposite ends of the spectrum as far as their ability to draw and their ability to pull ratings and pay-per-views, and two fighters in the opposite ends of the spectrum as far as their style. And we have to thank Golden Boy Productions and uh, K2 Promotions for finding a way to make this fight happen because it's a dangerous fight. Going into this, regardless of whether you were a Golovkin fan or you were a Canelo fan, nobody could say that this fight was not a dangerous fight for either man because of the 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 max of the maxing the matching of the styles. You have Golovkin who likes to apply a lot of pressure, break people down, come in behind his jab, and essentially beat people up and knock them out. And then you have Canelo who's shown the ability to move around the ring, walk guys into shots, establish his jab and eventually hit people with big enough combinations or counters that puts them away. And so you have two guys with two opposite styles stepping into the ring for what is essentially the match to determine who's the best middleweight in the world and possibly who's the, what, number one, maybe two pound-for-pound pound guy in the world as well. The big commotion... So, 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. I want to I wanna touch on a few things you said. Sorry, I was having some technical issues, but I seem to be good now. Yeah. I want to I wanna go back to the scoring, first and foremost. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Don Trella had it had the draw at 114-114. Um, Dave, I can't remember uh, David Left, which I think that was the other judge. He had it 115-110. 115-113 for Golovkin. Bird's 118-110 score card for Alvarez was so ridiculous. Um, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing that the the second that that score was read, people were like, "What the fuck is going on?" So much so that I'm not sure if you saw my piece on it or not for fan sided, but she was pulled off of UFC Fight Night. 216 where she was originally one of the judges being considered to judge that night but she was at Bob Bennett the Nevada State Athletic Commission pulled her off of that fight card now she's not working that night what are your thoughts of his response is it good that we're seeing such a quick quick and not want to say harsh but quick and definitive response to her um her scorecard I mean it was less than a month that he came down and um snatched her off of I'm um, excuse me it was less than a week that he came down and snatched her off of that upcoming UFC event. What did you think of his response? Well, I, I thought it's something that has to happen because too often we have judges with ridiculous scorecards and um, nothing happens to them. You know, they don't have to explain themselves and there's really no re there's no repercussion. Basically, they just go on to another big event or another big card or even if it's not a big card, the fact of the matter is the judge being able to score fight right and do their job is impacting the the careers and the livelihoods of the fighters in there. So there needs to be some repercussions. And I'm hoping that maybe this might be the start of a trend somewhere where, where judges start facing some kind of penalty. It, maybe they don't have to get fined financially, but you're going to have to take a break from judging or you're going to have to get retrained or you're going to have to be able to explain how and why you came to this conclusion before we put you on another card. Because essentially, let's just say somebody knows she's a judge and she's this bad. A fighter might actually fight out a character trying to make sure they make enough of an impression to get a good scorecard from her, which could end up with somebody getting KO'd at worst, um, losing, just losing, you know, somehow by decision at best. But I, I think it's good that they're starting, that they're doing this, and I hope they continue this in MMA and boxing so the judges will start having more of a, a reason other than their paycheck and their integrity, because that's obviously not enough to do their job correctly. What's, um, I haven't seen much of a response from the fight community in reference to this, but I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's a positive uh, response to seeing a judge get, and I'm saying punished in air quotes, seeing a judge get punished for such a horrible um, score, because like you said, you know, this greatly impacts their ability to make money. Um, for From a boxing standpoint, you know, yeah, uh, they're both still going to get paid millions of dollars for their fight. But what if you were the five and zero UFC competitor making ten and ten, and here it is, you just lost half of your purse because the judge made such a e egregious uh, call on the uh, scorecards, which happens like once in it once an event. Well, so it happens quite frequently, and I wonder what the fighter response was to this uh, punishment because I haven't seen much. I have to imagine fighters have made mention of before about judges facing some kind of punishment or being taken off cards. I've heard fighters say that before. So that that's one thing. And secondly, even though 
with with the smaller level fighters you're talking about money and they're not making it much he, that's very important but also if you're a high like in the case of Golovkin a lot of people pointed to his resume as a reason to downplay him because he wasn't fighting the top names so if he beat let's say he, he beat Jacobs already by decision let's say he beats Canelo that's back-to-back wins over two guys who are considered elite boxers in the world which essentially would justify all the hate he had gotten over his career for um you know fighting guys they said were second or third tier and a win over Canelo, essentially, you know, that, that kind of stamps him. That puts him in a position where if they have a rematch, he's in the driver's seat now. And and it puts and it puts him in a rare kind of air in his own country because, you know, you're the conquering hero. You're undefeated. You came over. You beat, you know, what some people are saying, one of the best pound-for-pound pound guys in the world. And you did it decisively. Even if it was close, it would have been a decisive win. That, that, that impacts his legacy. And given his age... You don't know how much, unless there's an immediate rematch, and even then, you don't know how much he might slip physically. You don't know when he'll get old every night, and that might have been his one chance to win. You know, it happens to fighters all the time. They're fine one night, three months later, their chin's gone, the reflexes are gone, and their chance to make their mark as far as being a fighter and get that respect from people across the world is gone with that as well. Did you see Tony, uh, not Tony Atlas, Teddy Atlas's response to the whole situation? Uh, yes, I did. Where he basically calls, um, he pulls the, the corruption card saying that this is blatant corruption, that um, the situation was put together because, for a couple of reasons, A, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me for a second, um, A, the rematch will come back to Vegas, and there's a lot of money to be made there. Um, <clears throat> hold on one second. <coughs> excuse me, sorry about that. No problem. But the rematch will come back to Vegas, and there's a lot of money to be made there. Then that with Canelo being the younger fighter, he's only 28, 29, I believe, that there, that this is still an opportunity to continue to build him because Golovkin, as you mentioned, is 35. So he's not getting any younger. Talk to me about that. Do you think that he has a claim there? Is Are we still at a point where boxing can easily be susceptible to corruption in a way like this. Yes. just If you just watch how certain guys get moved up the rankings and get put in, in certain opportunities, certain fights, you got guys who shouldn't be in the ring with certain, with other opponents or fighting for titles, or you have named guys who get to fight for titles when they're like on coming off of losses, on losing streaks, or they're fighting for an interim title against a guy who has no right being in the ring with them. It's all about money, maximizing the pay-per-view, putting butts in seats, getting ratings. A lot of fighters still benefit. Adrian Broner would be a fighter who has benefited from having a high um, appeal to the, the casual fan and the hardcore fan. And as a result, he's gotten opportunities he probably should not have gotten as a result of them putting in money and wanting to have a belt around somebody or wanting, wanting him to win in, in tight fights where against an, a lesser-named fighter would have probably lost. But in a, in a tight fight, they would give him every opportunity to win. It's a similar thing with Saul because he's a moneymaker. I mean, outside of Mayweather, Canelo's probably the biggest star in boxing right now as far as guys who pull in rating, ratings. Andre Ward might have been the pound-for-pound pound best, but Andre Ward doesn't sell. Lomachenko may be one of the pound-for-pound pound best. Lomachenko doesn't sell. Canelo has a huge fan base, and people come out to see him fight. That's why everybody wants to fight Canelo, because he's the money fight. Now that Mayweather's gone, Canelo's the money fight. So of course they want to protect him, and of course they're going to do everything they can to put him in position. The thing, the, the thing about it where they messed up is they didn't have to do it. Like, a loss like this wouldn't have hurt Canelo because he went 12 rounds with Golovkin. He took some big shots from Golovkin. He hit Golovkin with a ton of big shots. 
He showed his defense. He showed his skill. He went 12. He dug deep. He, he made it through. He closed the fight out strong. So if he loses a tight decision, what's that? He lost a tight decision in an exciting back and forth fight. It's not like when he fought Floyd where he didn't do hard, where there wasn't a lot of action and a lot of people lost their respect because they felt he should have went after Floyd harder and he, he took a couple steps backwards in the eyes of the fans, especially the Mexican fans. This was a fight where he showed his warrior spirit. He showed excellent skills. He showed his physical athleticism. He showed all those things. So even a close loss, that wouldn't have hurt him. I don't think that would have hurt his, his stock at all, for one. And two, it would, have made, it would have made the rematch to me even bigger because now you got to see if Canelo can come and get that one back. And if he beats Golovkin in the next one, well, now we have, now we have a third match. It's tied, 1-1, one, one. going in. And who's going to be the one who's going to pull out the trilogy fight? You so know, does this good. outcome make you more interested in a rematch? The outcome doesn't. The actual fight is what made me interested in it because, you know, I mean, th- there's a lot of ill drawing some fans because it's getting so much attention for the bad decision. So people, there's a certain segment of people who are going to want to come in and see, see if Triple G gets, gets jobbed again in that pro wrestling talk or see what happens. But the fact of the matter is it wasn't the greatest fight of all time. But it was a very good, highly contested and on technical and strategical level and physical fight. There were a lot of exchanges. There was a lot of variations in offense and defense on both sides. And there were adjustments made on both sides. That's what's going to bring people in because it was a good fight. People thought Golovkin was going to knock Canelo out. And some people thought Canelo was just going to outslick Golovkin the whole time and outbox him. And neither thing happened. Golovkin hit him with some hellacious shots. Canelo was still there. Canelo was trying to slip and pivot and duck off the ropes in, in the center cage, and Golovkin wouldn't give him an inch. He kept pressuring them. That's, what peop- that's what's going to bring people in, and the decision has kind of overshadowed the fight to a degree. It was a very, very good fight, probably one of the best two, three fights this year between two evenly matched guys, and we keep talking about the decision instead of talking about the outstanding fight. In some degrees, the drama has taken away from the fight, because what could, could be considered one of the better fights in the past couple years, especially in this division, is now being overshadowed by the fact that there was this ridiculous score scoring. So let's uh, talk about that then, because I do want to um, touch on the idea of who do you think pulled out the fight there. So I had it. Um, I had it for Golovkin. I don't remember what my scores were. Um, but I do know that I did have the fight for him. What scorecard did you have coming out of the fight on Saturday? I basically had it Golovkin about seven five. It was it was when people say there was no robbery. I, even though I I thought Golovkin won as well, but the thing about it is, it's the same thing as when we're talking MMA. You can you can pick one guy or another and you can be right, but the question is, can you? see the fight as a whole and not just see it from that perspective of I want this guy to win so I'm going to see it in his favor regardless of whatever happened whatever the fight was actually close the thing the difference in it in my opinion was that Canelo went through huge moments of inactivity where he couldn't maintain a pace like defensively he'd pivot he'd skip out to the center ring but then he'd back himself into the ropes the reason he was doing that is because he was trying to conserve his energy because Golovkin was putting so much pressure on him. And Canelo does, Canelo's historically had cardio problems. In almost every fight he's had, when it's been a tough fight or a guy he couldn't get out of there right away, he's, he's slowed, he's taken rounds off, he's taken moments and rounds off. That, that's to be expected. The only thing is, most people expected Golovkin to close the show on him when he, when he, um, get, when he gassed or got a little slow. The thing in Canelo's defense and the few counters he threw in spots was enough to keep Golovkin off him and not get finished or overwhelmed. 
But the fact of the matter is Canelo went huge moments where he wasn't doing anything. And even if he was slipping and rolling with a lot of shots, the fact of the matter was Golovkin was still hitting him on the arms, the shoulders, and the chest. And Golovkin was still controlling the pace, the place of the fight, the pace of the fight. And he was throwing a lot of punches when Canelo was doing nothing but making a miss, not making him pay. And that's what essentially won the fight to me in my regards as far as Golovkin. That and Golovkin's jab. His jab was there all night long. And Canelo had no answer for it. He, he had no answer. That jab was landing from the first round to the 12th round. He never figured out a way around that jab. And the jab, the pressure, and the fact that Canelo basically had to take rounds off is what determined the fight to me. So do you see a rematch happening? And if so, how would you have it going? Um, I don't know the exact numbers. I've heard the numbers are really good. And if the numbers are really, really good, like a million and a half or something, with all this extra stuff, they might crack two million next time. And if it's going to be that, that means it's going to be an immediate rematch. Because the, the biggest thing about Golovkin recently is he hasn't... Canelo, for the past couple of years, has fought twice a year. Golovkin likes to stay active so he can stay sharp. And the late older you get, the more you need to be consistently active so you keep your timing, you keep your endurance, you keep your conditioning, you don't lose anything. You can't afford to... You have to train smart, but you can't take days off of training like, other, like a younger guy can because you start losing your physical attributes. So if they have the fight immediately, which is what I'm going to think Golovkin's going to want, um, I'll put it like this. Canelo actually has more things he could improve to do to win. I think the fight that Golovkin won is pretty much the best fight he could fight. He's not going to win fighting off the back foot. I don't think he's going to win fighting in the center center of the ring. He's not quick enough. He's not slick enough defensively. He's, he's slick defensively more than most people give him credit for. But Canelo is clearly the better defensive fighter and the better counterpuncher. The problem is, and the reason I think Golovkin will win it again, is that Canelo always gets tired, and he had to put on a lot of weight and a lot of muscle to make this weight class and feel sturdy and strong enough where Golovkin couldn't just bully him around the ring, push him on the ropes, hold him there, and just unload on him. He, he had to add on even more muscle. That takes a lot of gas from him. So the whole thing that's going to happen is there's going to be, once again, spots where Canelo can out-slick out him and pot-shot him and pivot off the pivot off the ropes and hit him with check hooks and counter hooks and uppercuts and lead rights. There's all sorts of things Canelo can do, just like he did in the first fight. But the question is, will Canelo be able to maintain the pace? Because if he could have maintained the pace he did in the spots, like the first three, first three or four, last three rounds, he could have won the fight if he could have maintained that pace all 12 rounds. But he couldn't. He had to start sitting on the ropes and just defending and slipping and getting away. And there were times where Golovkin was out of position and he could have leveled them. But he, could, he, didn't, he didn't have the energy to do so. So Golovkin just got right back on him, throwing punches, pushing him to the ropes, and unloading. I think, personally, Golovkin can, especially the fights made immediately, Golovkin can maintain that pressure. His chin should still be good. He shouldn't have any problems taking those shots from Canelo for another 12 rounds. And this time, the big adjustment I think that Golovkin would make is he would if he attacks the body more. He has to find a way to work in body shots. Because if he's working in body, if Canelo's slowing, taking rounds off, and you're throwing at his head, he can slip, he can roll, he can, he can roll under, he can roll with the shots, but the body's right there all the time. If he can slip in a five to seven body shots, really dig five to seven body shots in every round, Canelo doesn't have the energy to come back late in that fight and push him and make it a close fight. He won't have the energy for that. He barely had the energy when he wasn't having hardly any body shots thrown at him. So I really feel that if the fight's made immediately, Golovkin, can work his way into the fight and do and repeat the process. Um, if the fight's made later, 
it's 50-50 because I don't know how much more slippage Golovkin is going to have if the fight's six months, eight months, or whatever, a year from now. So, that's all I really want to talk about recovering that fight there. I think it was definitely, it was interesting, it was, it was, it, excuse me, it was entertaining for sure. Um, and I would like to see a rematch. I just hope that this outcome doesn't continue to overshadow what we saw. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a good money maker. I mean, MMA fans and boxing fans are watching it, and that's the bit, that's one of the big things I like. When there's really good fights on, the fans of either sport will support that sport because all they want to see is quality quality fights where people are really putting themselves on the line and going out to be great. So let's move on from there. Let's. The only thing I want to hit, okay. The only thing I want to hit from that that UFC Fight Night 116 was the. Um, Luke Rocco, David Branch fight. There's a, probably a lot to talk about from that card, but and if you want to do talk about some of the stuff, let me know, and I and, um, you know, we can focus on that. But I just didn't really want to stick to that event too much. Let's talk. Let's talk about the main event and what you saw there. Um, Rocco gets the win via uh, submission to strikes. Uh, he took Branch's back and basically pounded him out from there. Um, I thought Branch started well. He definitely surprised me with how he looked in that first round, but um, he was unable to keep the pressure up and found himself taking the L. What are your uh, thoughts on that fight and um, what's next for Rocco? Uh, it was good for Rocco because it showed how devastating he is on the ground as far as the strikes and the control and his takedowns and his work in the clinch. And it still showed that he's still one of the strongest and more explosive and agile and fluid guys in the division the concerning part is it just highlighted how terrible his striking defense is and people always get mad at me. i remember months ago i think when we were doing this in october last year we were talking and you asked me who were the two overrated fighters and this is back when chris weidman was still had some burn and luke rocco still had some burn and i said rockholes and weidman are the two most overrated fighters in the middleweight division there's a lot of holes in these guys to get overlapped because one's big and tough and physical and the other one's super dynamic, long, and fast. This, once again, highlighted how bad Luke Rockhold's stand of defense is because David Branch isn't a pressure fighter. He's not even a real high-level striker, to be honest. And he's not a big hitter, either. He's not a guy who, like, just ices people with his power. That's not who he is. Yet he was able to pressure Luke, get him up against the cage, ASAP, and unload and almost have him, have, have him on his butt in two different occasions. I mean, Rockhold couldn't slip. He couldn't pivot off the cage. He couldn't, he couldn't roll and counter. All he was doing was just eating offense from Branch. And then eventually he got the clinch, got him down, bought some time, got into the second round, repeated, and then finished. But against a guy like David Branch, who isn't an A-plus athlete, he's not even an A-minus athlete. And a guy who, even though Branch has been elite in the lower tier organizations, Branch isn't elite in the UFC. So it makes you have some concern for Luke Rockhold because a guy who's not elite, not super powerful, and not super technical in a certain area actually took it to you and almost finished you on two different occasions in the area that you're supposed to be one of the top guys in the division, if not in the world at, which is striking. And Luke doesn't have it. He's, he's, he's a lot like Anthony Pettis, except a better athlete. He depends on his dynamic athleticism and the damage he can do to scare people off. And when those guys get scared of taking his kicks or his punches, they approach him with a certain kind of respect. And if you approach him with respect, he can land those kicks. He can land those punches off you. But if you just press forward and walk through what he has, he's got no actual technical answer for volume or for pressure. And he just eats it. He'll just tie you up and take you down. So I think Luke is still elite because he's so much far he's so much better 
than everybody else in the division. And athletically, he's able to compete with the best. But he has he has some very big holes on the feet that people have people have figured out now. People know it. I mean, they thought that maybe the Bisping thing was a fluke, but the David Branch fight pretty much cements it. This guy's stand-up defense is not very good, and his chin is not particularly good either. And the thing that's shocking to me is people are just coming to this conclusion. But Luke Rockhold's been easy to hit on the feet since day one. He's never been a very nuanced or layered defensive fighter. He's always depended on his length, his athleticism, and his dynamic kicks and his and his punches. He's not a good boxer either, but he can put single shots, one or two shots together. And that's what's gotten him by. One, now that people have figured that out, he's going to have to really start figuring out some other way to get his offense off or to, or to release that pressure so that he can compete with guys because guys know that a he can't take it and b he can't get away from it and you know that that clinch takedown thing do you see that working against robert whitaker i don't did that work against yo romero i don't know if it works against yo romero either so i mean there's two guys who were elite in the division who if they would have got him in that same position probably would have finished him inside of a round Bisping being the champion, and I'm not sure if you saw Rocco's responses to about uh, GSP and the opening fight in UFC 217. Is he surging at the right time where he can get into the title picture again and fight the winner? Well, it will be difficult for him to fight the winner against uh, the winner out of Bisping, uh, Bisping and GSP simply because Whitaker's already there with the interim title. If he's not ready to go until next year because of his knee injury, would you pick? Would you pick Rockhold to slide into that title picture and take that fight? And would you pick him as a potential new champion when comparing him to Bisping and GSP? Honestly, I, I don't think I don't think he would get put in. I think they put Romero in. I think Romero has looked better. He's beaten the better level of competition. And if it, if Bisping wins. And he decides to continue. He's already created a storyline with Romero stomping on the flag, cussing him out. There's already a built-in storyline there. Michael Bisping took care of that. Um, if GSP wins, he he's not fight, he's not fighting again. So he'll he'll his only choice would be to fight a Romero if if Whitaker can't go, or if Whitaker can go to fight Whitaker. Um, I I don't think I don't think Luke has a lot of options of this. He had he's only had one win, and he hasn't been active in what almost eight months, almost a year. He he's been he got he took time off he was doing his contract thing and then he got injured so he hasn't been active in a long time when he left the division was in a lot different shape than it was when he got back so I I honestly don't think he would get a title shot anyways to be quite to to, to be honest I don't I don't think he would get a title shot I I, don't, I know GSP wouldn't want to fight him and Bisping already has something built in with Romero and I think he'd rather take that Romero fight than fight Rockhold. Okay, all right, so I'm not mad at that there. I do think it creates an interesting timing dynamic for the UFC to see who that they would put in that situation and see which guy would be a, a bigger draw. I, I like the rivalry between Rahul and Bisping, and I would like to see a Rahul Whitaker fight. I think that that would be an interesting stand-up fight there, and I, would, and I agree with you. I would take Whitaker in that battle. Just, but. just this is a side note uh, about Rockhold. It looks like he's having trouble making the weight, and if he's having trouble making the weight, that's going to really mess up your punch resistance. And for a guy, in my opinion, who's not known as the most durable guy in the world, that's not a good sign, for one. And secondly, 
training at AKA, AKA is a good camp, but they've been known for sparring really hard and pushing their guys really hard. And if you notice, everybody who's been a champion in that division in their camp or been a top ranked guy has missed excessive time due to injuries. Uh, there's a price to pay when you do that. And as Luke Rockhold gets older, all that hard sparring and that hard drilling and that hard wrestling continuously adds up on his body and the body recovers less and less well from it. So that's two things to consider. One, I don't know how much longer he can make the weight class without really draining himself. And two, I don't know when all the mileage that comes from all that hard sparring with heavyweights and light heavyweights and, and whoever comes through is going to catch up to um, catch up to Rockhold's and make him more susceptible. That that might very well be the reason why he's had so many problems with his chin as it stands right now. So I don't know how much longer he's actually going to be viable as a middleweight. He's talked a lot about moving up to light heavyweight. He's been mentioning that for for years, almost right. since he's came into UFC. So I, that might be that might be a factor as well. Right, right. I think it's going to be it's, it's, it's an interesting time in the middleweight division. Um, they were kind of stagnant for a while now, but with GSP um, suddenly popping up. Whitaker being there, uh, Romero being there, and you have an uh, interesting dynamic where I think that it's going to be a compelling next few months to see who goes where. I, before I go on, there is something else I want to talk about from Saturday's card. Mike Perry. Now, Mike Perry got a victory over a last-minute replacement. I think the guy stepped in on three days' notice, and he got a violent stoppage, but he called out Robbie Lawler, uh, and I'm not gonna lie. I, Mike Perry may be an individual who's hard to be like a big fan of, but um, a Robbie Lawler, Mike Perry fight is interesting to me. What do you think? Uh, it would be interesting. The thing I like about Perry is um, he he's fighting a, a replacement guy, and he did what a guy in his position is supposed to do. He got rid of him. He got rid of him in an impressive fashion. The Lawler, um, the Lawler Perry fight, it's great for Perry. Because so far, Perry's chin has seemed to hold up. The biggest issue he's had is conditioning when he, he goes so hard that if you get him into the second round, halfway through the second round, he starts seeing him slow. That's what happened against Jobain, and Jobain was able to outbox him and outstrike him to a decision after uh, he came out really hot for Jobain. Um, I don't know if Lawler takes the fight, because Lawler, I mean, Perry's quite a bit down from Lawler, and Perry's a dangerous guy. Um, we still don't know how how solid Lawler's chin is right now. Cerrone can strike, but Cerrone's he's a he's a big lightweight. He's not a really super big welterweight. We don't he's not a big power shot kind of guy. Perry's got power in my opinion comparable to Tyron Woodley. So we don't I don't know if Robbie Lawler wants to risk his ranking in his spot in the division versus the guy who's ranked much lower than him, who's trying to talk his way into to being the division's elite. It's a great fight for the fans. It's a great matchup. Um, but I don't know if Lawler necessarily wants that fight because I don't know that that fight does a whole lot for him right now. Okay, uh, I don't think it does a lot for Lawler either, but I think that it. I think this is a fight that the UFC like would get excited about and it would make in a heartbeat because I can see this being a main event bout for a like a fight night or a Fox Sports card or something like that. Easily make it a five round fight with the. I mean, who doesn't like watching Robbie Lawler fight five rounds and? It would be the test that Platinum Mike Perry needs to see, hey, maybe this guy is a compelling uh, welterweight contender and at, at the right time where the division is kind of devoid of top top contenders. And this could be his gateway to getting fights against a Damian Maya, getting a fight against a Jorge Masvidal or Kobe Covington or someone along those lines. So I'm not um, upset with that. Hell, they could take him and put him in there with Rafael 
Dosanios and not watch that just as much. So yeah, uh, you, there, you are right. Options there. To have new blood in the welterweight division, you have to have guys get the opportunity to fight a higher-ranked guy and move up into the elite. So you have to give him that shot. And I'm not the biggest Mike Perry fan either, to be quite honest, but he, he's a soundbite kind of guy. He's very loud. He's very brash. And uh, in the current UFC... Um, you know, in the current UFC climate, that's actually a really good thing to be. And I, I find, I think he'd be very entertaining in a lead up if he was the main event, if he was in the main event and then doing interviews and countdowns, I'm sure he would be quite entertaining and he would uh, really draw in fans because of the kind of heat he puts out. So, I mean, it'd be a good fight. Him versus Desanios would be good. Him versus Lawler would be good. But once again, these guys are older veterans and I don't know if they're scared of him, but does beating Mike Perry put you in position to get a title shot? If it does, then either one of them might take it. But I don't know that it, I don't know that beating Mike Perry does that to, does that for you. But losing to him definitely knocks you out of the talks for a title contention. That's a fact. Definitely, definitely. So I, I thought that that was something that was interesting that stood out to me too as well. And I want to use that to segue into a group of interesting fights that are going on this weekend. Before, uh, you know, UFC, there, there's two events, Bellator 183 and UFC Fight Night 117. Yes, 117. So I want to start with Bellator 183 because in my opinion, this is a more interesting card. And it has a it has a few fights there that have caught my eye, stuff I wanted to talk about. So let's start there. Main event, Benson Henderson versus Patricky Fierre. I'm not sure if you saw... Benson's comments from earlier in the week, I believe, where he said that he thinks, you know, he's going to be winding it down. He knows he's in the uh, tail end of his career and he's kind of slowing things down now. Do you think that this is a good enough main event for him to get back into title contention within the Bellator lightweight division? Talk to me about this main event and what you see with these two guys going at it. Um, I mean, it is just given the light, the, the division isn't still isn't very, it's not very deep. So these are two guys who would, who are entitled, who are still in title talks and whoever wins this probably if they don't do a Primus v Chandler rematch, um, probably would be in line for a title fight. So, I mean, it's a fight worth getting. I would think that it's a fight worth getting excited for because it's essentially going to make him the next contender for a title match if, if he wins it. Um, it's really hard to tell what to, to expect from Benson Henderson because his performances have been kind of uneven, you know? Um, it, I wasn't a fan of him coming in at, at welterweight. I mean, I thought there was a chance he could compete, but I wasn't really the biggest fan of him coming in at welterweight. I was hoping that he would come in straight at lightweight, and I, I tend to believe that fight at welterweight might have taken a little bit something from him. And um, he had the last fight against Pit, against one of the Pitbull brothers. And before the injury, he wasn't looking particularly spectacular. His best performance was his fight against Michael Chandler, where he lost the decision. But that was that was a in my opinion that was a close decision. That could have went either way. But um, he really hasn't put together any impressive wins since he's been in Bellator. Even though he was probably their biggest the biggest guy they brought over because he was a former champion and it, it, it ranked lightweight and a ranked welterweight at the time. Um, he hasn't, in a sense, he hasn't really lived up to the hype of having him come over since he's been in the, in the, in the organization. So I, I can agree with that. Um, and it's unfortunate because it makes 
the UFC looked like they were right and cutting him right when they did. Uh, and he actually talked about that because he talks about the ACL injury that he had coming into uh, the organization. He says that he's healed now and it allows him to uh, look much better or he's expecting to look, look much better in this fight here. Um, I just, I just don't understand. No one, no one, like no one that you're coming from the UFC, no one that you're coming with all this fanfare and you're such a big, you're a big draw, you're a big person in the car. I'm not saying, I don't, I'm, I'm not questioning his judgment, but I kind of wonder why would you go ahead if you had any sort of injury, any sort of problem. I know there's difference between being injured and being hurt. I get that. He's a, he's a professional, he's a warrior, but knowing the stakes, knowing what the stakes are and how much faith Bellator has put into you, I don't know that I go into fight with any sort of injury issue when I know how much pressure is on me to perform and how much the, the organization has put on me to perform. I might want to make sure I got it's all all things go before I get in there because Bellator it doesn't have the name value, but a lot of their guys in the lower weight divisions are capable of competing and winning at the UFC level. So it, it kind of it kind of shocked me that he 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 would put himself in that position. Yeah, I'm not um, disagreeing with you there. Uh, let's let's also I want to talk about some other fights on this card where. I believe this fight is probably going to be the most violent fight of the weekend, Friday and Saturday, where we have Paul Daly and Lorenz Larkin fighting at 170 pounds. I wanted to write about this, um, but I just kind of ran out of time this week. It's been a long week. But this is a fight that I think is going to steal the whole weekend because, in my opinion, these two guys are going to come out and they're going to put on a show. They're two of the more dynamic uh, athletes in this weight class. Uh, Lorenz Larkin is someone who you know, I've always been a fan of. I'm kind of surprised that he stumbled in the division the way he did in his first fight out. I'm not really surprised. I mean, he lost to Douglas Lima. But I think that this is still going to be a great fight here. And I'm looking at Larkin to win. But either way, I don't think either guy really loses. Paul Daly, you know, even though he has a 39-15 record, he is one of those guys where it's like he's going always going to be in the top of the conversation just simply because of his knockout power. Talk to me about what you see here. Uh, is this? Do you agree? Do you think this is going to be an, an exciting fight? And is this something that everybody should make sure that they catch? Uh, yeah, it, it should be. It, it should be very exciting. I mean, Paul, like you said, Paul Daly is always in the mix because he is a guy who's got enough all-round skills where the lower level guys can't just, you know, exploit him. And he's always got that equalizer, that knockout shot. He's always a threat, whether he's losing a fight or whether he's totally outclassed. You always wonder, what if he lands that one shot? That was the only question against Rory McDonald. They're like, yeah, Rory's a better wrestler, he's a better grappler. He's got more skills, he's got more tools, he's younger. But he's had a lot of damage. And if Daly clips him, even gets a glancing shot across the temple, across the jaw, that, that's all it takes to turn the fight around. We've seen Daly lose fights like uh, and, and turn fights around with um, essentially just one shot and not just hurt guys and finish them, but knock them cold. So the fact that he has that KO power is going to be what draws all the interest in the fight. I really actually prefer Lorenz Larkin because I think he's better athletically. At this stage of it, Lorenz is the more creative offensive striker. He's got more, he uses more tools. Like Daly used to use a lot of his kickboxing. To me, it seems he really focuses on his hands a lot more now. And um, his cardio does not seem to be there when he's in a tough fight and he can't just wipe somebody out or dictate the pace with his power. To me, he seems to get a little bit, he seems to get a little bit tired and he's less willing, he's, he pulls the trigger a half second slower and he's less willing to pull the trigger because once he slows, 
his defense really isn't there. His defense is the threat of his offense. So then he starts getting hit with more shots, counter more often, and often overwhelmed. And that's what I kind of expect to happen. The question mark is, when he hits Lorenz Larkin, can Larkin handle it? Because Larkin, as good as he is offensively and as athletic and mobile as he is, the fact of the matter is Larkin is not a particularly strong defensive fighter. And if you can pressure him and stay on him, he'll back up a straight line. He'll have it. You get him in exchanges near the cage, he'll have his chin a little bit high. His shots will get a little bit wide, and you can, you can stop him. He's been stopped before. He's been stopped before by guys who aren't nearly as sharp a striker as um, Paul Daly. But I really think the Lorenz Larkin's volume, his, his hand speed and his foot speed, and um, his work rate should be enough. The only question is, if he gets hurt, does Daly put him away with one shot? Or if he gets hurt, does he get super defensive and then Daly takes over the fight? Because that's essentially what happened when he fought for the title. He took a big shot, he got hurt, and from that point on, instead of fighting to win, it looked like he was fighting to survive. I'm not saying he was scared, I'm not saying he's a coward, I'm not saying any of that. But when he takes heavy, when he takes heavy lumber, he tends to dial it back offensively and essentially do enough to be competitive, but not do enough to win. And Daly, even though he's limited as a fighter, is still seasoned enough and still tough enough that if a guy is going to just dance away and run from him and not pull the trigger, Daly can up the pressure on you. And the only difference between Daly and these other guys is if Daly catches you clean, it will be the end of the night of you. It will be the end of the night for you. He could still knock out UFC level welterweights with his power. It's just a matter of can he get into the position and impose his will to the point where he can get those shots off. But I, I fully expect Lorenz Larkin to um, outslick him and outhustle him to a decision. Maybe a stoppage, but um, I'm thinking more like a decision. See, I, I, and man, I just kind of got excited for a second because I just visualized a Jeremy Stevens Mike Perry fight. But I mean, not, not, excuse me, a. Um, Goodness, a Paul Daly, Mike Perry fight, and I just got a little bit excited there for a second. But anyway, you know, we're talking about Bellator here. So, do you, when we look at the at the welterweight division, the, the fight between Roy McDonald and Diego Lima was just uh, announced earlier this week. Does the welterweight division involve just these four guys? You know, you have Daly, Larkin, Kreskov, Lima, McDonald. Does Bellator have anything beyond those five, or is it just these five, maybe MVP, and that's it? it it's hard to even put MVP in there because MVP has, still has not fought a guy who's capable of matching him on any level, whether it's technical skills or athletic skills. So we really have no idea what MVP does against somebody with any sort of comparable skill or physical ability to him. I really was hoping that they'd make an MVP Lorenz Larkin fight just to see how he handles a guy who's creative striker and it can match him as far as hand speed, foot speed, and explosiveness. But um, really, Bellator's problem in welterweight division is the problem they have in the majority of their divisions. Their top four or five guys fully capable of competing with any organization in the world, including the UFC. But after that four or five, the gap between five and six in Bellator might as well be the gap between one and 15 in the UFC. That's how far it is. They, it's like they have this top five, they're top heavy, and after that, they don't have anybody. That's why you keep seeing these ridiculous rematches. You have guys who fought four times in Bellator. You've never seen anybody fight in the UFC four times, not in a, a two-year period. But in Bellator, you don't have enough viable guys with names or guys with enough experience and skill to, comp to give these guys good enough competition that you can justify making a fight and draw any sort of interest with them. So Bellator's problem has been the same problem it always has. They don't have any depth. The funny thing is, in their women's strawweight division, 
or flyweight division, excuse me, they actually are bringing in all these girls and they have, because the division didn't exist in the UFC, they had all these girls to go to. So their division is very deep. The, the featherweight division is getting deeper and deeper every day. But the divisions they've had for the men that have been existed for years, what, five, six, seven years now, still are really only five guys, five to seven deep at the most in every single division. So how do they fix that? Um, where do they find talent? And is there anyone on anyone in that roster that you see bubbling up to the top as a name to watch? I, I really don't know because the only way you can see if those guys can handle it is to get them to face, get them to face a guy who's who's an upper level guy. And Bellator is trying to get ratings. You know, part of their thing is getting in ratings, building their brand, expanding it. And Lorenz, Lorenz Larkin versus Michael Smith doesn't do it. You know, we know Lorenz Larkin was competing with UFC level guys. You can't just put him in with anybody and draw because he's not that kind of guy who can draw based off of that. But if you put him in with the, one of your top guys, you can kind of you can make that attract you can make that a fight you can make that attractive. So they don't have guys with enough familiarity to even be put in those positions. Like um, the UFC, the UFC has so many fighters. A guy like Matt Brown, who Matt Brown, who is a good fighter, not a great fighter, he had a chance to go on like a six-seven fight win streak facing third, fourth, third, and second tier guys before he got to the elite guys. So by the time he got to the elite guys. He had a reputation as being tough. He had a reputation of being all action. He had a reputation for never giving ground and huge comebacks and fights. And so by the time he got in the position for these top guys, people had seen him enough and seen him devastate enough guys and improve enough over this two-year period where they're like, okay, he's ready for these guys. Let's see what he can do. And he got to fight the top guys. He fought uh, Maya, Lawler, Hendricks. He got those fights to prove whether he was elite or not. He ended up not being elite, but because the UFC had the depth, he had enough time to build himself up. Same thing with Stephen Thompson. Because they had depth, they could put him in against guys who were quality guys, but were the right matchups that allowed him to slowly work out the kinks, develop a fan base, work on his skills to the point to where he fight, when he finally faced the guy who was in the outskirts of the elite or at the low end of the elite, he was A, prepared for him, and B, had enough name recognition and enough of a fan base where people would pay attention to see what he could do. They haven't had that option with their fighters. They just haven't had enough fighters. And at this point, they could do it, but it would take it would take a couple years for those guys to really establish themselves. As it is now, Bellator guy wins one big fight, and next thing you know, he's fighting a guy who's in the top five. And he, nine times out of ten, gets completely dominated because he's not at that level yet. He's getting that fight too early. So what they need to do is bring in guys and... They need to bring in a lot more guys, but they need to bring in guys of a higher caliber. A lot of guys who are like journeymen or gatekeepers, those guys get cut from the UFC, they need to have guys like that. They need to bring those guys in because those guys can either build up their own win streak or they can help young fighters develop their skills and get their seasoning on the way to developing their, their winning streaks. But right now, they just don't have enough depth to develop a fighter. All they can do is bring in names and hopefully bring in another name to fight them. And they're just going by. That's, that's how they're getting by. But nobody's really developing. You, How many guys from Bellator have you seen actually come in two years from now, two years ago, and now they've worked their way up to being elite? Most of the guys who came in were already considered, you know, top five, top seven when they came in. So nothing's really changed. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I'm trying to, I, when you said that, you know, I tried to immediately think of someone. Uh, only thing that came to mind is the Irish guy. Um, I know you're talking about Ward. Brendan, no. Brendan Ward, Br Ward? No, oh no, you're talking about. I know you're talking about the guy from uh, Ireland, actual guy from Ireland. Uh, 
James something. He he fights Gallagher, at SBD. Yeah. yeah, Gallagher. And and and, and you, you can say Ward too as well. I remember when he was um kind of blowing up for a second there. So yeah, him as well. But the, but the thing about it with Ward and some of these other guys, like somebody will be like, well, look at Korshkov. He's been here. But Korshkov came in under the tournament thing, under Rebney. Same thing with Lima. These guys made their bones back when Ben Askren was there. So they didn't get developed under underneath um underneath Scott Coker's reign. He hasn't really developed anybody. He's brought in some names. He's gotten guys bigger profile fights, but who is he really he hasn't really developed anybody in the time he's been there. Nobody's come in as a as a, you know, seven and three fighter, seven and no fighter, and really actively worked their way up and now they're ready to step into the elite, except for maybe Gallagher and and uh, Antonio McKee's son. That's about it. That's two guys mm-hmm. in the same division. So where where are the other guys? Where are the other guys who were who are building up? He hasn't had any, and he hasn't signed any, and he hasn't signed any journeyman types or any prospect types. Like, you know, not high tier prospects, but prospect guys who've got some potential and gotten them the work necessary to get where they need to go. He's just been putting on big events, trying to draw on ratings, signing Stefan Bonner and Tito Ortiz and Chael versus Tito. And Chael versus Wanderlei, that, that's great. Those drawing eyes, they're drawing casual fans. But to really have an organization or a combat sport, you need those in-between guys, those middle-class guys. Same, you know, those middle-class guys, same thing in business world. They're the ones who really make all the money and do all the work so that the upper-level people, upper-level people have their millions and have their CEO positions. It's the same thing. You have this elite, but you don't have anybody working their way up from the middle class. So let's look at some of the other pieces that stand out from this fight card for Friday. Aaron Pico. Well, before we get on him, let's go to Roy Nelson. Uh, Javier Ayala. Ayala. Roy Nelson is making his Bellator debut. Do you care? You know, does he still have something left in the gas tank? Is he someone that's going to catch your attention, or is this an opportunity for Bellator to? Um, build a name in Ayala it's both because uh, honestly I thought Roy Nelson I never thought the UFC was going to be behind him and I never thought he really matched up with the elite guys in the heavyweight division I mean he's a tough enough that he could hang in but he's not his skills and his athleticism weren't enough for him to beat those guys and I felt before he fought Stipey he should have when the hit, he had the Stipey fight I believe he should have left he shouldn't have signed a contract and he should have went to Bellator years ago he probably could have been a Bellator heavyweight champion by now uh, to be quite honest, he could have already had his heavyweight championship, and the Bellator would have pushed him tremendously. You know, they would have really gotten behind him and his whole shtick because they're about stars and people who who can relate to the fans. Not a certain look, not a certain type. Bellator just wants whoever is going to get the job done, whoever is going to draw on some kind of eyes and some kind of interest. So I believe he should have won a Bellator years ago. Um, Ayala is a good fighter. He uh, knocked out Caratana, if I remember correctly, and um, in the heavyweight division. You never know. I mean, the most unheralded guy can turn around and put together two or three wins together, even in the UFC. And Bellator's heavyweight division, if the UFC division is is middle class or lower middle class, Bellator's heavyweight division is like just above the poverty line. So there's a very live chance that Roy Nelson could be contending for a title in the near future. And um, if Ayala wins, it's a great win for him over a named guy who's no, especially if he knocks him out. Roy Nelson is known for his durability. Only Mark Hunt has been the only guy to put him out. So if Ayala was able to stop him and do, do, and do some in violent fashion, that makes him look better than all these other guys who would beat Nelson by some kind of decision. And if Nelson comes in and puts some wins together, that just helps Bellator because 
He's a guy who's spoken out against the UFC. He's a guy who has a fan base. And he's a guy who only wins really in one way. So they're guaranteed to get what they want, which is exciting fights at heavyweight. So it's, it's interesting that you say that because I think, you know, I don't... They have options with him. Do they put him in there with Czech Congo and give us an opportunity for that rematch or that highlight reel knockout? Do they put him in there with Bobby Lashley? I mean, there's some um, crossover appeal there as well. So there are some things that they can do with Nelson. Yeah, they got, they got Lashley. They got Lashley. They have, they have Lashley. They have Karatanov. They have Congo. They have a, they have a couple guys they could they could actually put him in with, you know. And and like you said, pe- people like Roy Nelson. I'm not saying he's a huge star, but he can move the needle to a certain degree. And just coming fresh out of the UFC, that automatically he brings a couple fans over there. So there's a lot of options that he has, and his big thing is knocking guys out. So they, there's a lot they can do with him. He's an interesting character. He knows how to play up to the crowd, and he's kind of got that everyman vibe. Because unlike everybody else who looks like they should be, you know, fighting in a superhero movie or one of the Avengers, he just looks like a regular dude who's at the who's at the bar hanging out with his wife who might want to fight you. I mean, that's that's Rory Nelson's whole shtick. And they, they, they really know how to play up to guys who have their own little their own little character or their own little shtick. The UFC does not particularly care for that. But Bellator is very big on playing that up. Just think about how they've embraced David the Caveman Rickles. Yeah, that's very true. I almost forgot. What is that guy doing now? I almost forgot all about him. Uh, I think um, he's, got, he's going to be headlining a card in another couple months, if I recall correctly. I think that's right. I forgot all about that. So let's look. Next thing. Aaron Pico, he's coming back uh, to face another well-rounded guy in Justin Lin. I mean, now, Lin hasn't fought in over a year. He last faced off against Kobe Gibson, and he's riding a two-fight losing streak. Is this better matchmaking for Pico, and how do you see this fight going? And and he's moving down to uh, 145. I, I really, even though everybody had a problem with Pico fighting the guy he fought, it didn't bother me because the fact of the matter is given Pico's given what he's trying to do as far as he's he's only competed at the world class level. I can't imagine that a guy like him was A gonna wanna take a pushover. That's just not that's not how he's gotten to where he's gotten. And second of all, given his background and his pedigree, think think about when Pat Cummings was trying to get fights. When he was in the UFC, he kept saying it's so hard to get fights. These guys hear they hear my resume, they see my athleticism, and they don't want to fight me. Now, if guys don't want to fight a guy like Pat Cummings, who is a good resume and good skills, what are they going to do against what are guys going to say against a guy like Pico who's got all these high-level boxing accomplishments, all these high-level grappling accomplishments, all these high-level wrestling accomplishments? The guy, the average guy making his debut or who's 1 and 0 or 2 and 0, he's not going to want to fight him because he doesn't want to be a can on Pico's rise to the top. So he's going to be forced to fight tougher competition because nobody's going to think that he, given all his skills and his experience, no, nobody's going to think it's a fair fight for him to fight a one and no guy or an 0-1 guy or a 1-3 guy. It just, even though he's only got one fight, even before he had one fight, it just, it just looks very lopsided to have a guy with his pedigree and his athleticism fight a guy at that level. And most of those guys aren't taking that fight anyway. Secondly, and I said this after the, the Bellator card, Heather Hardy, in her first fight, fought a girl who was like 4-5. and five. Now, I understand that's not a winning record, but Heather Hardy hadn't had any MMA fights. She'd been training for, what, six months to a year? So she fought a girl with who was, in my opinion, a little bit bigger than her, way more experienced, had nine fights. So she's, a, she's an actual legitimate... She had just as many fights as Rose Namajunas. Now, Rose Namajunas is a much better fighter than the girl Heather Hardy fought, but the fact of the matter is her and Rose Namajunas had the same number of fights. And she fought her, and she beat her. 
and Heather Hardy was pretty much just as just as new to MMA as Pico. Pico's actually had more experience because he's been working with AKA over the past few years. So he actually had more of a first-hand experience training and preparing for MMA than Heather Hardy. So why is it okay for Heather Hardy to fight a girl who's bigger than her, more experienced? And But we have a problem with Aaron Pico, who's an all-world wrestler, all-world grappler, and high-level boxer to fight a guy with more experience who's, who's bigger than him. I, I just don't see the problem, to be quite honest. Okay, I'm not I'm not mad at that um, breakdown there. So let's see what else do we have from this card. Is there anything else that stands out for you on this Bellator 183 card? Not not particularly. It's the biggest it's the biggest thing I have with Bellator cards. Usually, like their first, if you if you cover enough Bellator cards, and I think they've actually gotten better. But usually, what happens is they have like a couple really competitive fights. But nine times out of ten, the, the questions you end up asking about the fight is you focus on one fighter because he's a named fighter or she's a named fighter who's got so much class and skill and experience. And your question is, what are they going to do next? Because nine times out of ten, they're facing a person who, in all actuality, probably won't push them, much less beat them. And that's not a good problem to have when you're in the fight promotion business. You want to have fights where people are 50-50 or you can see valid ways that this other guy could win or the other person has a name as well. And once you get usually past the first two or three fights on a Bellator card, it just goes into, well, what's next for this guy? Or why don't they, you know, every time we've talked about Bellator card, we've talked two, we've talked three topics. One, Bellator improving their depth. Two, what's next for the said name fighter. And three, we just focus on the top two fights. That's almost every Bellator card we've ever discussed. It's always in that, that, that discussion because after those three points, you don't really have anything else as you go further and further down the card. You don't really have a whole lot to talk about as far as quality fights or a guy you've heard of or a guy you've seen or a guy who's on a big win streak. It's a lot of guys who, who at this moment are really fourth and third tier fighters. So with that being said, let's move over to UFC Fight Night 117, which is their event in Japan on Saturday. Now, this conversation might be a little bit different because at the top of the card we have Owen St. Prue and Yushin Okami. This was originally supposed to be a rematch OSP against Shogun. A rematch Shogun. nobody asked for. A rematch nobody was asked for except for the person who created that skateboard gift because that's probably one of the best gifts in, in May history, I must say. Other than that guy, no one else was um, looking for this fight here. Uh, one, I don't know why Shogun was pulled out of the out of, out of the. I didn't see anything when I first saw. I knew it was a knee injury. Okay, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was, guys. I was looking and I didn't see anything. Um, a, are you like Okami? Like they couldn't find anyone else to step in and take this fight. That kind of caught me off guard. And B, what do you think about this fight? Who comes out on top? I was really shocked. You know, I heard that Gohan, Gohan Saki is supposed to be fighting on this card. Or he's supposed to be fighting soon. And I'm like, why not just, I mean, why not just put him in with OSP? I mean, if you're going to do anything, why would you fight a guy who's been fighting at welterweight for the past couple years and having him come up to all the way to light heavyweight to fight? It seems kind of seems kind of strange. And it seems even more strange that you don't have any light heavyweight who's willing to take that fight. Like, there's nobody. I mean, I, I know the light heavyweight division isn't, Literally deep, but you don't have anybody who'd be like, hey, I'll fight this guy on short notice. We'll just have a catch weight instead of fighting at 205. Or was it a matter of OSP's guys having to approve whoever 
they got to fight him. Either way, it just it's just a really bad look. I mean, if if he fights Okami, Okami's a tough guy. Okami was a legitimate middleweight. I get all that. But if Okami somehow comes in here and beats OSP, I don't know how his career recovers from that. Like if he if he knocks him out, it's it's devastating to his career. If he just takes him down and grapples him and controls him, oh my god, that's almost worse than a knockout. You let a dude who's been fighting at welterweight who's been getting touched up by welterweight, a guy who got beat up by David Branch just came in here and ragdolled you and pinned you and, and, and grinded you out? Oh, oh lord. I mean, it, it, he should win it. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's longer, he's a better striker, he's a better athlete at the stage, he's a harder hitter, he should have the better chin at this size and be more durable. But I mean, like, if this fight's even mildly competitive, it, it just it just brings up a lot of questions that OSP does not want to answer. He he essentially needs to treat this fight the same way Stipe treated it when he fought Fabio Maldonado and just walked through this dude. Like, if it's even mildly competitive, that that's a problem for OSP because it, it's this is a fight that's not interesting and it does it it's, it it shouldn't be competitive. And if it is for even a moment, people are gonna really start looking at this dude like. Like, you, you really were kind of a, a waste of talent because you're top-end world-class talent and you've never been able to get over the hump. And now you're fighting a guy who's a, who's a blown-up middleweight, actually now a blown-up welterweight, or who'll be a blown-up light heavyweight coming from welterweight, and you're having problems with him? It just, it's just a bad look, in my opinion. It's just a really bad look for this fight to even be taking place. Yeah, and it really just caught me off guard because this is a fight Okami can win, especially with the way he fights. I wonder what his, uh, you know, fitness level will be like taking this fight last minute, but um, this is definitely a fight that he can win. And if he does win, it's like, well, what do they do with him? Because clearly the UFC made it well known that um, he, what well, I don't want to say wasn't welcome, but he isn't, a, he wasn't someone that they had a lot of value in. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't I, understand. I, I, like, if if he wins this fight, what does it do for OSP? Like, what does that set up for him? I, I don't know. Like, I think it's just like a placeholder for him because, like, is is OSP even a real contender at two hundred five? I don't, I don't think so. I don't see him beating someone like a, like a. I don't see him beating a Glover Teixeira, let alone um, Gustafsson or Cormier, Cormier at this point in time. So, what do they really want out out of him? I'm thinking right now he's just he's like a name guy. And uh, they just keep him around, keep him, keep him active, and hopefully when one of their younger guys needs to step up fight, OSP's a good guy. I mean, that's how, uh, I forgot how to say the guy, Ozemek. Uh, I can't say his name correctly. Vulcan but, uh, um, Ozemir. Yeah, Ozemir. He had beat, he's won two, two fights in a row by brutal knockout. The only guy he didn't brutally knock out was OSP. He went tit for tat with him, and he won a split decision, a really tight fight with him. So, I mean, it's proven that OSP can still push people and he's tough enough and seasoned enough to really see if you have a legitimate guy who's ready for the elite. But as far as being a title challenger, he, OSP's never been able to get over the hump against the very best guys. Against the very best guys, he's always come up short. Against, uh, who was it? Bader he lost against, I think, he, did he lose to Cummins? No, he didn't lose to Cummins. He lost to Glover Teixeira. I mean, he always loses. He got a chance to fight John Jones. He lost to him as well. You know, and then he lost to Ozemir. So he's, he's lost to all the guys who've been the better guys he's fought. Every time he's kind of stepped up in class and athleticism and skill, he's found some way to lose. So, I mean, essentially to me, he's kind of like a, maybe like, he's like a, I don't want to say a journeyman, more like a gatekeeper type. You know, he, he, he's not a big money maker. He's, he's dangerous in spots, but he's kind of limited in what he can do. And he's the kind of guy you need to be able to beat 
before you can say you're an elite, before you're a name fighter, you're an elite guy. Okay, okay, I'm not mad at that now. Let's talk about the fight that should be the main event with Claudia Gadelia and Jessica Andrade. This is probably the most important fight to me on this card, and it has maybe like the biggest title implications across both um, the whole weekend. How do you see, and I personally think that this fight should be five rounds. This should have been the main event and it should have been a five-round fight because there, as I mentioned, there are title implications on the line with the women's flyweight division coming into play. And Joanna Jacek is scheduled to face Rose Namajunas coming up. There's been rumors about Joanna moving up to uh, 125 and even Valentina moving down to 125. So it will create a hole at 115. Gadelia and Andrade, in my opinion, are the two women at the top of the, at the, top of the division waiting to get um, back into the title picture. This should have been a five-round fight, but instead we have a three-round um, contest, which I think favors Gadelia more. But talk to me about what you see here. How do you see this fight breaking down? Who do you expect coming out on top? Funny thing is, I actually did an article for Severe MMA regarding this fight, and um, I, I, I'm going to actually go with Gedalia. I, I think Andrade isn't a bad fighter. She's still super young, but the thing about Andrade is she's had a lot of fights. Like, she's fought she's fought a lot. Even though she's only only been competing for really a few years, she's she's just had a lot of fights, and she's she's been very busy. And I tend to think that as a result, who she who you've seen over the past few years is essentially who she is i mean i think there will be some improvements but i don't think she's going to go from this type of fighter and switch switch types or switch styles i think a lot of her identity is wrapped up in her ability to be physically imposing to be punishing to work at a high pace and to basically overwhelm people and break them down with pressure and physicality i think that's who she is now i think that's who she's going to be for the extent of her career i don't know that she'll she'll never go back up to bantamweight um but if she can't compete at this weight, she could always fight at um, the new the flyweight division. Now they have another division for her to go to. If she no longer is in the title title talks of this weight class either, so she could still move up a division and still have a huge size, physicality, strength, and power advantage over the majority of the girls she's facing. And that's basically the story of her fight style. She's not a stupid fighter. She actually does things in a it's not a technical manner, but it's a, it's a, she has a strategy and a game plan that's based around her style and her physical abilities. The biggest problem when facing her is that she applies a lot of, she applies a lot of forward pressure. And I'll compare it to the uh, Mayweather Conor McGregor fight. No matter what happens, she stays on you. So that means even when she's not a threat to hit you, you're throwing punches because you feel her pressure. And then whenever you try to separate or get away from her, she just gets right back on you. So you're constantly having to work to get her to get away from her and to control the distance. And since she's really hard to hurt, and most girls in that division aren't big punchers or big strikers as far as power goes, they end up wasting a lot of energy because they can't keep her off her, they can't get away from her, and then they're not they're afraid to really load up and throw something at her because they're afraid they're going to get tied up and taken down by her. The benefit for Claudia is she doesn't have any of those problems. Claudia is a better all-round grappler. She's a better all-round striker. And she's a comparable athlete as far as athleticism, quickness, explosiveness, reaction time, speed, and strength. And that's the one thing that Jessica has not faced very often. She hasn't faced many girls who actually don't just have better skills than her, but have the physical attributes to put those skills to work. Angela Hill was too small and couldn't take the punishment and stay in there. Jessica Pinay isn't very durable and isn't really a great athlete, so she couldn't take advantage of her grappling advantage. Uh, Jojo Calderwood has the power and durability, but she starts slow, she gets tired quickly, and she's not very athletic. 
So Jessica Andrade had huge athletic advantages over those girls that allowed her to do whatever she wanted and work through any spots of danger that she would have because they just couldn't do any damage to her. Claudia can hurt her, can hurt her on the feet. Claudia, if she takes her, Claudia can take her down. If she takes her down, she can work her over from the top, probably submit her. Claudia is hard to take down and Claudia is hard to hold down. So for the first time in a long time, Jessica Andrade isn't gonna be able to manhandle someone and dictate the pace and the place of the fight continuously. And every time she hasn't been able to totally manhandle somebody physically or really rough them up, she hasn't been really successful. When she fought a Bantamweight, those girls were bigger and stronger and she couldn't do as much to them. So she came out to a quick start, but once she started facing the better skilled girls, those gaps in her skill, those gaps, the defensive grappling started showing up, the holes in defensive grappling, the holes in her stand-up striking, the holes in her wrestling started becoming more apparent because she wasn't able just to physically dominate girls. And now she's not gonna be able to physically dominate Gadelia either. I expect Gadelia to use the jab, to use her footwork to turn her, walk her into shots. I expect Gadelia to put combinations, punch kick combinations, kick the legs, work the body. And essentially I would think Gadelia is gonna probably clearly win the first two rounds and in the later, the third round, I figure that's when Andrade is really gonna try to turn it on. But I don't think it'll be enough and there's a good chance that I think um, Andrade Gadelia probably wins the decision, but I think that if she gets her in a scramble or she takes her down, I think there's a very good chance that uh, Gadelia can finish by stop by some kind of TKO stoppage or submission. That's a pretty interesting um, idea there. I, I expect to see this fight go the full distance with Gadelia controlling her way to a victory. What do you think happens if Joanna leaves the division? I mean, they have... Even, even if she if she defeats Rose in December, whenever that fight is planned for, and she leaves the the division, what do you think they do with one fifteen? Because I think I don't I, I don't put her as the only draw in that division. I think that one fifteen is probably one of my favorite groups right now, and they have a lot of talent there. So what do they do next with, with that? that? Well, if Joanna, if Rose wins, then that, and Gadelia wins, I mean, she's gonna, whoever wins this fight, if Rose wins, gets the next title shot. That's that's in my opinion. If Joanna wins, then once again, Gadelia is be the last two title contenders, which means she would still be open for a title shot. If Joanna, some reason, lose leaves, like decides she's gonna leave the division, then essentially, I would assume Gadelia would just have to face the next viable contender. And right now, as far as wins. It'd probably be someone like Felice Herrig, maybe Tisha Torres, maybe, will be the only two people who are currently on win streaks. I mean, Michelle Waterson is a big enough name, but she hasn't even had a fight since she got finished by Rose Namajunas. So I don't know that she'd be in the, the discussion for a title fight. So I'd assume they'd have a title fight between Claudia and um, either Herrig or Tisha Torres. That's the best fight. That's the best fight I could think of. Angela Hill wouldn't have had enough fights or wouldn't have had enough good wins, in my opinion, to be ready. Watterson hasn't fought since. Um, Andrade would have just lost to Gedalia. So who else would there be as far as like an actual fight that makes sense for the title? Yeah, um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. So we'll see what happens next for that weight class there. Now we have the rest of this card. I mean, it's a UFC Japan event, so they're definitely trying to showcase more of their Asian talent. They have Takanori Gomi fighting for the first time in, Jesus, it, well, he's, oh, he fought earlier this year. I didn't even realize that. But um, he fought against John Tuck back in June at UFC Fight Night 111. But Takanori Gomi is coming off of a four-fight losing streak, and he's 
one in five in his last six being stopped four times straight. This is clearly a uh, push for them to kind of keep someone that's a big name in, in Japan on the card there. What do you think? He's 38 years old. Do you think we're at the point where we're finally going to see the fireball kid step away? And do you know anything about Dong Yong Kim? This is the other Dong Yong Kim, not the uh, welterweight that we are familiar with. This is the this is the lightweight who is coming off of a win from last December. So what are your thoughts about this fight there? Um, well, first about Gomi, I, I really feel bad that they're doing this. I mean, he just hasn't seemed to be super dedicated to the, to the sport. And that's, that's been it. I mean, he's still, even five, four or five years ago, he still had enough talent where he was dedicated to the process, really working his wrestling, really working his submission defense, really working his scrambles, and really working his striking. He could have had wins. I'm not saying he would have been a top, top guy or one of the best guys, but he could have won at the UFC, at least won one, lost one, won one, lost one. But he doesn't be, seem to be dedicated, and for some reason the UFC keeps trotting him out and putting him, putting him in against guys who, while they aren't elite, are guys who are totally capable of beating him within an inch of his life. And I don't get any pleasure out of seeing a guy who was a once great fighter put into fights he, that he could win if he was seriously prepared, but he never is, so he's essentially got no chance to win, and he just gets beaten up every single time and it's, it's never close it's never interesting it's never competitive it's just so one-sided it's, it's almost embarrassing that they would do this and it, it's a problem i have with combat sports where they bring out names just to get beat up just to get a few extra butts and seats I, I don't think that's ethical i don't think that has a lot of integrity i mean i guess the fighter needs the money but at some point what, what point do you put a stop to that and just think about their long-term health because getting beat up and knocked out not being in competitive fights and taking punches that's different just getting beaten up and dominated just isn't good for anybody. And I can't imagine what this is going to do for him in another five or six years after he's done and, and, and trying to live like a normal life. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm definitely, you know, I'm always, he's 38 years old. I'm really concerned about fighters continually doing what they're doing. So, um, but we'll see. I mean, we'll millions, see. Like they some of these they need somebody. Some of these boxers... Like, I'm not saying it's okay because it's still your mind and your quality of life and your family has to deal with that. But there's one thing when you're getting paid 500000 a million dollars, or some 600000 300000 that's one thing. I don't think he's getting paid that kind of money, in my opinion. I don't think he's getting paid that kind of money. And at this rate, he was, a, he was one of the biggest stars in Japan at one point. He, just, he shouldn't really need the money, to be honest. So um, it, it just it bothers me. It, I can't really even watch his fights anymore because it just... It's like watching an execution. It's like you know what's going to happen. And even if he wins, God forbid he wins something, pal, and then he starts continuing, you know. It, I'm sorry. I, I just don't really have much to say past that point on him. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you there. Uh, let's look at the rest of the card. The only other thing that probably stands out to me is um, Hyung Gai Lin. Lim. Um, I like to see, you know, he's a, definitely a he's a he's a wildly powerful fighter at welterweight. I think he's in the opening fight, the South Korean competitor. Outside of that, I don't see anything that really kind of stands out to me on this card. It's kind of, it just is what it is. Did you see uh, De Silva? I completely forgot he was on the card. Hold on, let's back up. But we do have Gokan Saki. Um, Gokan, excuse me. Gokan Saki making his MMA, uh, excuse me, his UFC debut. You know, he's owned one. He fought back in 2004, and he's widely well known as a fantastic kickboxer. 
do you care about this fight there? Do you care about seeing him making his uh, USC debut? A lot of people were kind of surprised that they signed him, and they thought it was more of a signing to keep him away from Bellator. So now he's stepping in, into the cage, and is this something that, that, that you want to see? Does this compel you to watch any more than usual? I mean, it's always interesting to see a guy of his caliber with his resume and accomplishments fight and test themselves. That's interesting. I just don't know how well prepared he is for this. And, and what his chances are of winning outside of, and and even who 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 wouldn't be a threat to him you know because as far as I'm guessing his re- his defensive wrestling and his defensive grappling is still not up to par and I know light heavyweight's not exactly a, a dangerous d- division but you know if you're that far behind on the grappling front any fight any fight versus any opponent is dangerous you know it's like that's why I said why didn't they put him in with OSP because at least if he loses he's losing to a guy with who's had multiple wins in the UFC, who's been on the outskirts of being in the top 10, if not been in the lower top 10 before. So that would make some kind of sense. And if, even if he loses to OSP, so what? And if OSP loses to him, so what? It's your big signing who's a world-class striker at the highest of the highest le- highest caliber. So it's kind of a win-win either way, regardless of who wins or loses. It's kind of a win-win for the organization and win-win for the fighters. But, you know, given, his, given what I'm going to assume is a huge hole in his game, Everybody he fights is dangerous, and you don't want to put him in too tough. But the fact of the matter is, even a guy who's only 500 in the UFC or 500 outside of it is a danger to a guy who can't grapple, who can't really grapple and can't really wrestle. Yeah, it was definitely, um, I'm in the same boat. It was kind of perplexing to me to see this fight created. But I mean, I guess that, I guess the organization knows what they're doing. I, just hope it, I hope it's not just something cheap they're doing just to, for the cheap, for the sake of him being on this card to hopefully get some more attention because that's not that's not good for the fighter. And that's once again, we talked about that last week with Jason Adams about management. You know, why are these fighting, why are these management teams letting their fighters get into these situations where they're not giving a chance to properly develop or properly prepare? You know, I mean, like how prepared can he be to go into the UFC? Even in this division, how prepared can he be to really compete and actually have a legitimate career you know what are they what's the plan for them do they have a plan for them are they just throwing them in are they trying to get sales like what are they trying to do is somebody asking these questions on his behalf or is he just in it for the money because if i was going to go into that situation i want to have a plan and actually give my best attempt to move forward and be successful i wouldn't want to just be in there just to be in there to, to get a couple quick paychecks if that's what you're gonna do you might as well stay in kickboxing where where you have a name and you have a celebrity i mean hey you know at it prize fighting is the name of the game so with that being said uh let's go ahead and close out this week's show did you have anything else that we may have glossed over that you want to kind of reach out about uh while we have a chance um yeah i had two things one i heard about uh, andre ward supposedly retiring i don't know if this is going to stick but he was saying it's just too much for his body and um He's getting out, and I was going to say, you know, I've never been the biggest Andre Ward supporter. I think some of the decisions he's made outside of the ring have in some cases been irresponsible as far as his legacy as a fighter and in another way have been disrespectful to some of the people who helped him get where he, he's at. But he's always, for the most part, never gotten any drama. He's always, he hasn't embarrassed his wife or his family. And in the ring, he's been one of the smartest, most versatile, skilled, and as we found out late, one of the gutsiest fighters. Um... In recent history, um, he's made he, he did his country proud in the Olympics. 
He's done himself and his family proud, and I think he's done a great job, and he's picking a perfect time to get out because it's clear that he's on the decline physically, and it's only a matter of time before some young guy comes and knocks him off and, and kind of throws his whole, his whole reputation and his whole legacy upside down. So hopefully he, he finds peace in retirement. He continues to comment on the sport, and um, more importantly, I, I hope he stays retired. I hope this isn't like a Floyd Mayweather thing where you help you, you let another guy build up his brand and then you come back to fight him. I really like to see him just call it a day and move on to the next phase of his career. Let me ask you a question about Andre Ward. Why did he never reach that crossover status that many people thought he was? They thought that Ward was going to be the, the big star to kind of revitalize boxing and, and draw attention, but he never really became that. Why not? A couple of reasons. One, he's not a very exciting fighter. Most of his fights... Are very he fight like he's here to win and if you tell him that he's here to win and he's here for the people who appreciate boxing he's not here to get into wars he's not here to knock somebody out in one punch he wants to essentially take you apart break you down outsmart you and outclass you and then show you he's a better person throughout the length of the fight with using strategy savviness and skill he's not there to be exciting he's not there to exchange he's not there to put on a show that's not what he's ever done secondly He's had huge gaps of, of inactivity through injury and through legal proceedings. In some of the prime, prime years of his career, he wasn't fighting. He just wasn't fighting. He was in the court fighting or he was recovering from injuries. So while he was on the sideline, other guys who weren't the guys he had beaten or guys who, uh, who weren't the fighter he was came over, found a fan base, put on exciting fights, and kind of took the shine from him, even though he had the better record or resume as far as accomplishments and fighters he beat. And one of the big reasons is the way he kind of talks to people. I think he's a good guy. I think he's a good father. I think he's a good representative of the sport. But it's sometimes, sometimes when I hear him talk, him and his coach, I feel like they're talking down to fans. I think they're insulting fans for liking what they like. And I think he feels because he's, he's the world championship boxer that he has the freedom and the right to talk down to people. And you know what? He does. But that, that attitude and the way he responds to people and the way he talks to people in boxing and out of boxing it rubs some people the wrong way. And if you're not an exciting fighter and you're not, in many people's opinion, a very likable fighter, you're usually not going to do too many, you're not going to do too much business. And, um, and those are my reasons for him not being famous and not being huge, but it might just be that he's not the kind of fighter who's ever going to be big or huge. Being the best doesn't make, we've already talked about this before, being the best does not make you the biggest star. Some people just aren't meant for stardom. There's no real blueprint to stardom. For everybody who can say you do this, this, and this, they've done that with other fighters. They never made it. Other fighters don't have good records. They win, they lose, they win, they lose, but they're the biggest stars in the division. It just depends on if you resonate with fans, the fans can connect to you, and whether you create enough drama or interest in your fights where people pay money to see them. And Andre Ward has never been that guy. People haven't found him relatable. People haven't found his fights entertaining. And he hasn't gone out of his way to appease the fans in any front, not by talking trash, not by having another character, and not by putting on exciting fights. He's just chosen to do it his way, and he's been the best, best in the world for a long time, but he was never one of the biggest stars, and he was never one of the best pay-per-view draws or one of the best ratings grabbers. He just never has been. And um, I think that's going to affect his legacy on a certain level um, when people look back on it. Why is this guy the star that I want to expect him to be? 
And I wasn't too familiar with the answer to that question. So we'll definitely see what it's like um, with him if he does retire. It's, 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 it's just, just one more thing. Like, we talk about Tyron Woodley, and he's always talking about, you know, this, this, this. And it, Andre Ward is a perfect example. You know, just because you're a good guy, just because you do things, just because you're the best, it doesn't really relate into popularity. And more, more fighters need to understand that all you can do is maximize the popularity you have. You can't create it where it doesn't exist. There's no secret potion and antidote to making someone a star. I mean, you, there's just no way. There, there's just no way to do it. And just because you can speak well, just because you carry yourself well, just because you're very intelligent and you represent the sport the right way, doesn't mean you're going to be a star. Just like talking trash and flashing money doesn't mean you'll be a big star either. It's just one of those things you you really don't have any control of it. Only thing you have control over is the effort you make in maximizing your brand. And even in that, Andre Ward never really took any steps to maximize his brand. He kind of felt like, I'm the Olympic gold medalist. I'm undefeated. I beat all these guys. I should get this respect. I should get these sales. I should, I should, I should. I don't know how much work he actually put into creating opportunities where he could develop a fan base. I know he put a lot of work into his craft. I don't know how much work he put into actually becoming a bigger star. I think he, he felt that just doing what he did and being who he was and having his accomplishments should make him a star in and of itself. And that, that's just never been enough in any sport. It's never been enough. The best guys have never, haven't always been the biggest stars. Just look at LeBron James. He wasn't always the best. Peyton Manning wasn't always the best, but they've been the biggest star for how long? And as we sit here and talk about retirement, you know, we didn't mention it, but Matt Brown uh, announced his retirement um, this today as well. He's going to, well, the fight that he has coming up on the 11th of November against, uh, who was he fighting? Is it Jorge Masvidal? I think it's actually, Diego, is it Diego Sanchez? It is Diego Sanchez, yes. So his November 11th bout will be his last fight. I mean, Matt Brown's one of those guys who's, greatly excelled so beyond what you believe his skill set was so i'm interested in, in the interviews leading up to that fight what is it what does he look like what does where's his mind at um brad matt brown was someone who i didn't appreciate at one point in time in, in the fight game just because i felt like he was given opportunity before defeating a, a big name but i mean he still has a win over stephen thompson yeah I he smoked him I, I, once I heard that he was thinking about coaching, I really felt that he was he was going another direction as a fighter. I didn't feel he was long for the sport. But uh, much like Diego Sanchez, the thing that I respect about Matt Brown the most is he's not a really great athlete. To be honest, he's not like some great technician, striking, grappling, or any aspect of MMA. He's a guy who wanted it, a guy who who was who was in a losing streak and turned it around just by desire, pushing himself and being willing to get in to face the best guys available and face them in a way that put himself in a great at risk of a great deal of harm. It's like he said in a countdown once he goes, you have to risk going too far to figure out how far you can go. And I feel that that's the way he, he lived his professional life as a fighter. He went as far, he took every risk possible, took the biggest fights when he got him, fought anybody he could to really push himself to see how far can I go? How good can I be? I think he's gotten the answer from that. And since he's found that answer, I think he, he doesn't have the fire to move forward with his career. It's like, he wouldn't know how far he could go. He found out. He's not really elite. He's not really this kind of fighter. He knows what kind of fighter he is. He knows what he's accomplished. He's proud of it. There's no need to move forward because at this stage of his career and his life, he's not going to be getting better physically or really technically. So there's no point in going, you've already found out what you need to find. You've proven what you need to prove in. You far outshot the expectations for you. I mean, 
he's a he's a he's actually one of the best guys in mixed martial arts as far as being a professional and ne- never shortchanging the fans on the effort he put into the cage and i think the sport will be worse for losing a guy such as himself and um oh one other person gerald harris he will be retiring soon as well he's not a ufc fighter but he was at one point he beat D- david branch when david branch was in the ufc he's a guy i had talked i had spoken to on many times many times throughout my life in covering mixed martial arts and just training he's a really good guy a pro's pro never talk bad about everybody always willing to talk about the sport with anybody who would listen whether it's fan an up-and-coming fighter up-and-coming coach he was always affable always willing to share himself and his experience and his skills and his body to help people train and develop and he's another guy who was an asset to the sport and even though he was never a big star and he wasn't on the big stage very long he too will be sorely missed because they don't have enough guys who are really pros pros in the mixed martial arts we have a lot of guys talented a lot of guys up and coming but guys who really know the game and really carry themselves well and really have something to pass on to the younger guys coming up we don't have very many of those so great job mr brown um and great job gerald harris shout out to you for just being an outstanding representative of the sport as a, as a whole yeah i remember he had that highlight reel slam of gerald uh, excuse me david branch and he did it twice he did it to someone else recently as well too so i've always wondered why he could never get back into the ufc maybe on like a short notice type of deal because he was the type of fighter that they appreciated someone who went out there and or went out on his shield so i did not know he was planning on retiring as well but he's just he's another person who um was better than the record books will remember yeah it's important i think it's important i know you can't we can't always talk about every single person who retires but i think what guys and people know who he is because he's had a social media presence and he stayed active but i think it's important that the guys who didn't become the biggest stars and who didn't get their second chance on the biggest stage that they get appreciated too that's one thing boxing is good about that mma hasn't quite gotten down yet those people who put those time in and those guys who who guys beat on their way to becoming better fighters, those guys are very important. They help shape the sport more than anybody else. The stars help bring the money in, but it's those guys, those in-between guys, who push the sport forward, who, who give those, those stars that, their first big win, who give them their first big test, who help smaller organizations have legitimate cards that'll help get them to the next phase to where they can become bigger and maybe be a feeder system for the UFC or a competitor for UFC. That, Sport needs more guys like that, and I feel like guys like that are often overlooked and underappreciated when it comes to the end of their career. And they deserve someone to speak up on their behalf and to say, "Hey, you did a great job too. You made a difference too." It's not just the UFC guys and the big name guys. The Gerald Harris's, the Chris Lytles, people like that—they deserve their respects too. They won't ever get it on a bigger scale, but they deserve it from each and every one of us because they gave their very best and carried themselves well and did not embarrass our sport. And not not the majority of our stars can't say the same, especially with the recently failed drug test. The majority of them can't say that. And these guys did right by the sport, right by the fans, and right by their families and themselves. Yeah, I'm not going to um, disagree with you there. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out uh, this week's edition of the show. I um, What am I working on this week? My eyes are on ADCC this weekend, um, the Olympics of competitive grappling. I mean, I've been doing previews for Bloody Elbow. I have a couple others I still need to get up before this weekend. But I mean, if you're a fan of uh, jujitsu, be sure to watch. Be sure to watch this weekend's um, event because it's the. I mean, it's the best of the best. Just like I mean, I didn't even mean to think of that movie when I said that, but it's it's the best of the best. And even I mean, even though there's, there's even a 16 year old 
kid that's stepping up to join the tournament on last minute because someone was pulled out. So, I mean, this is going to be a hell of a show this year. It's going to be at the wee hours of the morning on Saturday and Sunday because it's in Finland, but I think it's it's definitely worth catching. So I will be covering that, and um, that's where most of my focus will be. What about you, Sean? Uh, I did an article for Combat Press regarding Luke Rockhold. Is he still elite? And then, of course, I did the... Uh... Claudia Gadelia, 10 Steps to Victory for her versus Jessica Andrade. It's uh, it's pretty lengthy, but I try to go through the 10 steps I think she needs to follow to get a victory, and I give multiple examples of how it works within the cage, and examples of fights in boxing and MMA that would explain, explain the strategies and the techniques that I'm suggesting that she use. I try to look at it from the position of a coach who would be coaching her against Andrade and how you would best attack her. How would you best break her down? What would you do to keep her out of the spots she needs to be in? And what do you do to survive in the spots if she gets you in those to turn the fight back around and get to the spots where you need to be to dominate? So it's pretty detailed. And of course, it's over women's mixed martial arts. And I personally take pride in the fact that I probably do a little bit more anal analyzing and fighter-specific breakdown for women's martial arts than most anybody else who works at any major or smaller MMA publication like really breaks it down and gets into the nuts and bolts of the fights. So I want to thank, I hope Direct People is on Severe MMA. Check it out. And um, like I said, if you like talking about women's MMA or MMA in general, listen to our show and uh, look for us on Twitter. We're always there to talk about combat, sports grappling, boxing, MMA. We're, we're, we're all here for it. And we, we love the fans and anybody who supports us and what we're doing. So let everybody know where they can find us and um, talk about, uh, let us know where everybody can find us. We're on Stitcher Radio, YouTube. We're also on SoundCloud and iTunes, if I recall correctly. And of course, you can find us both on Twitter throughout the day. If you have questions you want for the show or just things you want us to discuss, feel free to uh, tweet us. We are more than willing to answer any question you have or discuss whatever you want to hear on the show because we do the show not just for ourselves but for the fans who want to become more educated about the sport and who are entertained by what happens on the business side and the combat side of the sport good 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 so with that in mind let's go ahead and close the show out man i appreciate you once again joining us and i look forward to our conversations next week man. i'm sure we'll have enough to talk about yeah, man, uh, take it easy, and uh, you need to work on that offensive line for Carolina, man. Cam ain't going to make it this year with this. They're, they're going to get that man killed. They're going to get that man killed, and, I mean, I, I just happened to read the injury report for this coming week. Ryan Khalil is supposed to be out, so we'll see how that goes. Good Lord. For yeah, Super Bowl, I mean, two I years ago, MVP, Super Bowl, and uh, we don't even know who knows. Who knows? They're 2-0 right now, like, so I'm just going to ride the wave, see what happens, but, man, it, it gets scarier and scarier every time they step out on the field. Uh, I'll, I'll say a prayer for you. Ho hopefully he makes it through another one. We'll see. All right, thanks, man. I definitely appreciate that. All right, man. You take it easy. You too, man. Have a great one. Bye. Bye.